I'm going to show you how great I am. This was our fighting power. I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. Hello, and welcome to How to Take Over the World. This is Ben Wilson. Welcome to another episode. This is going to be an end notes episode on Philip the Great, Philip II of Macedon. And just so everyone knows what end notes episodes are, is when I make an episode, I take a bunch of notes and then I streamline them. I cut out a bunch of those notes when I make the final episode. I cut any side quests, anything that doesn't have directly to do with the main plot. And so I end up with all these notes that there's some interesting stuff in there. It's not totally relevant to the main story, but you know I found it interesting enough to note. And uh, so at the end, I will sometimes create an end notes episode where it's just kind of a stream of consciousness. It's a little less formal, and I just share with you some of the random notes that I took. And so I'm going to be doing that today with Philip. Um, so let's crack them open. But first, a word from our sponsors. This episode of How to Take Over the World is brought to you by Taft. As you study the lives of these great historical figures, you start to pick up on little similarities. Some of them are really obvious, like that these are all very intelligent and hardworking people, but other similarities seem rather odd. And one of those odd similarities is the way they dress. They all seem to adopt the prevailing fashion, but with just a little bit of flair to make them stand out from the crowd. Julius Caesar had his fringe on his toga, Alexander the Great wore Medusa on his breastplate, and of course Steve Jobs wore his famous mock neck shirt. Well, I reached out to Taft to be a sponsor of today's show because they fit into that tradition perfectly. Taft is a men's footwear brand that specializes in boots and shoes. They take shoes with a very classic and timeless look and mix up the design just a little bit and give their shoes enough flair to stand out in a really cool way. All their boots and shoes are handcrafted in Europe. They're incredibly well-made. They're super comfortable, they last forever, and you'll look great. I wear my Taft boots all the time, and they look and feel incredible. So head over to taftclothing.com and use the code HOWTO10 for 10% off your order of any fully priced boot, shoe, or sneaker. Again, you'll really love them. Wear the shoes that Caesar or Alexander the Great would wear if they were alive. Go to taftclothing.com and use code HOWTO10. Okay, the first thing that I had a note on is a question that many of you asked me about, which is who do I actually think is greater, Philip or Alexander? Uh, I kind of asked the question at the beginning of the last episode, but I never really answered it. And one of the reasons I didn't want to get into the answer is that I haven't told the story of Alexander yet, so it feels a little premature to compare them. I did sort of make the case for Philip with that Iron Man speech, if you remember that, which if you're going to make the case for Philip, that's basically the case to make. It's that he made the weapon and handed it over to Alexander, who fired it. If I were to make the case for Alexander being greater than Philip, I'd pull from a different movie, The Social Network. It's about Mark Zuckerberg, the founder and CEO of Facebook, and he's arguing in a court deposition with some college acquaintances who claim that he stole the idea from them. And they say, you know, Mark stole this idea from us. We're the real inventors of Facebook. And Mark responds, it's really not difficult to figure out. If you guys were the inventors of Facebook, you'd have invented Facebook. And so without getting too far into Alexander's story, which is coming up in the next couple weeks, he would probably argue, if you were the founder of the greatest empire in the world, you'd have founded the greatest empire in the world. Which, you know, fair enough. And I'm not saying that I agree with that line of reasoning or that I think Philip is greater. My point was that I think Philip is on that level. 
He belongs in the pantheon. He is on the same level as Alexander, Caesar, Napoleon, but he's really not considered that, right? Most people just think of him as the father of Alexander the Great, but I think he does deserve to be known as a great, a truly great conqueror, statesman, king, ruler. Okay, let's see what else. One actor, one uh, city-state that I didn't get a chance to talk about was Sparta. Sparta is really interesting to a lot of people, uh, myself included. Their society was obsessed with military discipline and war. They were very rigid, very conservative. And so it's easy to admire them for their military discipline. By the time of Philip, their star had fallen a little bit. Um, they were no longer, you know, this big military power in Greece. And their main role in the whole story of Philip was to remain neutral. They were fiercely protective of their independence. So mostly Philip didn't poke them, didn't bother them. And they pretended not to care or not to notice that he was conquering the rest of Greece around them. There is one extremely famous interaction between Philip and Sparta. If you've heard the word laconic, it means extremely brief or terse. And it usually has the connotation of being at least somewhat witty. And it comes from the word laconia, which is the ancient Greek word for Sparta. And there's this great story that shows just how laconic the Spartans could be. As I said, Philip mostly left Sparta alone. But after his defeat of Thebes and Athens, he started to worry about them a little bit. And that's because he had effectively cleared out every other challenger in Greece. And so he was afraid that they would take advantage of this situation and conquer some nearby city-states and make themselves a power in Greece. So he sent them a threat. He said, quote, You are advised to submit without further delay. For if I bring my army into your land, I will destroy your farms, slay your people, and raise your city. So he's essentially saying, you should submit to me now, because if I defeat you, I'm going to destroy you completely. And the Spartan envoy comes back with a reply, and it's just one word. The response simply says, if. And that reply captures the entire Spartan spirit in a nutshell. Like, yeah, you're right. You can do those things if you can beat us, the greatest warriors in Greece. So come and get some. Come find out. If. And uh, it was a pretty effective response. In the end, Philip decided not to invade Sparta and challenge them though he did hamstring them a little bit by raiding some of the territory that they controlled. And Philip actually used them for a very different purpose. He used them as proof that the League of Corinth was voluntary. If you remember, the League of Corinth was this super organization that he organizes at the very end of his conquest of Greece, and it includes basically all of the Greek city-states except for Sparta. And uh, it is the organization through which he was going to coordinate this invasion of Persia. And so by allowing Sparta to not join, he was able to say, look, see, this is totally voluntary. It was maybe not completely totally voluntary. He was the biggest military power in Greece by far. He defeated all of his nearby rivals. And so there was this sort of implicit threat that if you don't get on board with the League of Corinth, um, maybe some not great things will happen to you. But by allowing Sparta to not join, he could make the case like, well, you know, Sparta's not in it. So clearly not everyone has to join. And this leads to what I find to be some pretty hilarious inscriptions um, and declarations, monuments, everywhere that Philip and Alexander go, mostly Alexander, um, he'll defeat some tribe and erect a monument, and it will read, uh, here's, a, here's an actual inscription from a, a monument that Alexander erected. Alexander, the son of Philip, and the Greeks, except the Spartans, won these spoils of war from the barbarians who dwell in Asia. And that's hilarious to me. It sounds so salty. Like, hey, check this out. Me and the Greeks, except for the Spartans, we won this great victory. Like, he wants to make sure that everyone knows that the Spartans do not get credit for this big invasion and all these conquests. Okay, what else? 
Uh, I have one note that says this episode should really be called How Athens Took Over the World. And uh, the answer is that they took it over with great PR. They were a great merchant and naval power at one point in time. But Athens' days as a regional superpower were in the rearview mirror by the time that Philip came along. Their army just was not strong enough to conquer other significant city-states and project their power throughout the Mediterranean. And yet, Philip was always extremely quick to make peace with Athens. He was very lenient with any and all peace treaties with Athens. He was always releasing Athenian prisoners without ransom. He never garrisoned soldiers in Athens. And that's because Athens was seen as this old city of wisdom and culture and learning. Um, it was the cultural and philosophical center and heartbeat of Greece. So they got really lenient treatment from Philip. And not just Philip. Other conquerors treated them in the same way. They always gave them very lenient treatment. Uh, when Rome was ascendant, Roman emperor after Roman emperor would give Athens preferential treatment. The most notable example of this was the emperor Hadrian, who had major works built in Athens. And he actually tried to make Athens sort of like a second capital of Rome. Tried to make it kind of a cultural capital of Rome. And he built so much in the city that there was uh, an entire new part of the city that was called Hadrian city, and he erected an arch at the point of demarcation between the old city and the new city. And on one side, it reads, this is Athens, the ancient city of Theseus, Theseus being the ancient founder of Athens. And on the other side of this arch, it reads, this is the city of Hadrian and not of Theseus. And Athens basically had a couple hundred years at most where they were really productive and really were this cultural capital of the world with all this amazing philosophy but they just coasted for like the next 600 years and everyone gave them credit despite their total lack of achievement. So anyway, I guess it goes to show the power of an idea, of a brand really. I mean, you can think of Athens as this, as this brand. So it wasn't truly a conquest because they were still at other people's mercy and yet they enjoyed the goodwill of people around the Mediterranean for hundreds of years afterwards because of the way they captured the public imagination. And I think there's a lesson in that. Speaking of which, another person I wanted to talk about is a man by the name of Isocrates. A number of Greek philosophers had suggested the idea that the Greeks needed to invade the Persian Empire, and Isocrates was the loudest, most eloquent, and most respected of these philosophers. The basic idea was that at one time, the Greeks had been great, and part of that greatness was that they expanded. Whenever there were too many people in a given city-state, which was frequent because Greece is not great for growing crops, so it's very easy to outgrow the amount of arable land. But whenever that happened, they would send out some settlers on ships and establish a new city-state, a new colony somewhere else in the Mediterranean. And they founded colonies all over the place, all around the Mediterranean, including the Black Sea, uh, in Africa, in modern-day Italy, France, Spain, you name it. And then, for some reason, things changed. The Greeks stopped sending out new colonies, and instead, when material circumstances degenerated, they went to war for their limited resources. There have been a number of suggested reasons as to why that might have happened. The most common of which is that, you know, all the easy farmland around the Mediterranean was gone. All the low-hanging fruit for places to settle new colonies was gone. So their only option was to fight it out for these resources. I don't know if I buy that. I tend to believe uh, some of the theories that are more uh, cultural, uh, that there was a cultural shift for one reason or another. But in any case, the Greeks now constantly fought and squabbled. And there was the perception that their former glory was gone their golden age was past. So Isocrates of Athens, who was the head of the rhetorical school, which was the rival of Plato's academy, had the idea that, hey, all these Greek city-states are always fighting because we don't have enough land and we don't have enough money. But if we just invade Persia and take their empire, 
well, they have plenty of land and money, and then we can make them our slaves, and we'll be fat and happy and stop fighting each other. Here's one quote. He said, quote, Consider what a disgrace it is to sit idly by and see Asia flourishing more than Europe, and the barbarians enjoying a greater prosperity than the Greeks. So, I mean, obviously the ethnocentrism might not be commendable, um, but the self-confidence certainly is. He believed that they could defeat Persia no problem. And, um, I mean, I guess based on what we see from Philip and Alexander, maybe he was right. In any case, he did appeal to Philip, who publicly took up the idea of the Persian invasion just two years after Isocrates died, and probably had been privately espousing the idea for a number of years before. It's unclear whether Philip would have come to this conclusion anyway on his own. Uh, they were the biggest power, and maybe he just innately would have wanted to take them over. But I think it's likely that not, that he got this idea from Isocrates. Certainly the way that Philip organized it, as this giant Greek invasion, almost a crusade with all the city-states involved, was very much Isocrates' plan. So to me, this is another example of a different way to take over the world. Isocrates did it with his ideas, and then let someone else actually carry it out. So I think that's important to remember. There are different ways to do it. On this podcast, we mostly talk about the people who actually do, uh, the doers. And there's a reason for that, to go back to the social network. You know, actually doing it is definitely the most difficult part. You know, if Isocrates were the inventor of the Macedonian Empire, he would have invented the Macedonian Empire. He would have been Philip. But, um, you know, even though that's the hardest part, uh, it's not the only part. And not everyone can be a Philip. Some people are born to change the world with their ideas rather than with their direct leadership. One other thing, uh, last episode, I briefly mentioned the companion cavalry. In Macedonia, the king's companions were some of the top nobles in the kingdom. But more importantly, they were the guys who he had around at court with him, who were also his elite soldiers. They were basically the knights of the round table. So they resided at Pella with Philip. And unlike in Persia, where the king was basically a god and no one could address him as an equal, the companions did address the Macedonian king as an equal. He was obviously first among equals, um, but he's like your super rich, super powerful friend. Uh, you know, the companions were his friends. They were his associates, his advisors, uh, and definitely his friends, the people he hung out with, the people that he ate with, the people that he talked with around the campfire. And so they were a really crucial part of the functioning of the court in Pella. And yet they were also this super elite fighting force. And Philip and later Alexander really used them as a hammer in battle. He would use his Sarissa spearmen to hold the enemy infantry in place and slowly weaken them. And he would wait and he would wait. And then when the time was right, he would ride in with his companion cavalry, smash through their line or roll up their flank and send the enemy running. And that just sounds like the coolest thing to me. I mean, I think it must have been a lot of fun. Can you imagine you're the king and you're watching this battle develop and you're waiting and you're waiting for that perfect moment. And then boom, you ride in literally with your best friends who also happen to be the baddest dudes in the world. And you smash the enemy, you break through and I, am, I relate it to sports intrinsically because I played sports growing up. But it's like you are winning this big championship. Everyone's looking at you. You get all this glory and this fame. So you can see why Philip campaigned every single year when he was king. He was at war every single year. And that's because I imagine, frankly, it must have been a lot of fun to do this time after time. And by the way, many people think Philip did pioneer this technique of using cavalry at the decisive moment to kind of smash the enemy. In the past, cavalry were used mostly just to protect the flanks or to pursue defeated enemies. They were generally not deployed as the decisive charge in battles. Um, obviously, after Philip, that became a very, very common technique for literally thousands of years. 
And Philip is, as far as I can tell, basically the guy who pioneered it. And Alexander is the one who perfected it. So that's pretty cool. Okay, so that's basically it for the end of my notes. Uh, I know this was a shorter episode. I didn't have as many notes as usual on Philip, frankly, because there isn't that much information about him. Uh, his time was not that well documented. So there just aren't as many details that can be gleaned, unfortunately. Um, but I hope you did enjoy these end notes. Uh, let me know what you thought at ben at httotw.com or on Instagram or Twitter at httotw. Again, that's the abbreviation for how to take over the world, httotw. I know it's a little confusing. And uh, just before I go, one more thing. I want to plug my main source for the series on Philip, which is Adrian Goldsworthy's Philip and Alexander. It's a really, really good book. Uh, very good history as well as good reading. It's easy to read, easy to pick up. Even if you're not a history buff, I highly recommend it. It's, uh, it's good reading. So uh, yeah, that's it. Thanks very much for listening. Until next time, thanks for listening to How to Take Over the World.